Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It is 8.25am on the morning after the night before. This one's different from the other ones in that we're not having to keep checking the updates. We didn't really have to check the updates at five past ten. It was clear what was going to happen. The Conservatives have won a thumping majority. And now, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> Let's talk about what comes next. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just 19.99, and they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. Where can this plug in? <laughs> oh, Darren, I know Darren. I went to sleep about ten past four and the alarm went off again at five. Um, yeah, so I, I actually genuinely was too nervous to watch the exit poll. I uh, stayed up for the exit polls and then my wife was up at four to catch a plane and so I was up and... Uh, you know, catching up, watching. I think I was asleep at about quarter past three, and then my alarm woke me up at 6.45, and I think it was quite good sleep too. <laughs> the dream team of Helen Thompson, Chris Bickett and Chris Brooker here, and other people are going to join us. We've had lots of people contributing to our discussions about British politics and Brexit, constitutional issues, legal issues. We'll be getting to that too. Let's focus on the core politics. There are a hundred stories, but there are three main stories. Good night for the Conservatives, bad night for Labour, something more cosmically awful for the Liberal Democrats. Should we do the Liberal Democrats first? It's not just that Joe Swinson lost her seat. It's not just that they now have, I think, 11 members of Parliament before they had 12. But they precipitated this. I mean, that's the thing. They did. I mean, I'm not sure we can replay it, but there is certainly a view among some Labour MPs, including, I have to say, the MP for this constituency, Cambridge, that Johnson was trapped and Joe Swinson opened the door. If so, it's not just a miserable night for them, it's Greek-style hubris. It's it's difficult, I suppose, not to say sort of I told you so in a way. But I think the fact that Joe Swinson lost his seat is maybe the... There's some sort of symmetry to it because they focus the campaign on her. There's that famous sort of moment where she suggested that you know what she's really going for is to become PM... So the thing has just gone full circle. I think the the probably the fatal mistake was the revoke Article 50 position and this sort of presidential style campaign. So you uh, think that was the fatal mistake rather than going for the election in the first place? I mean, that now looks like that week when Johnson passed the second reading of the withdrawal bill was going to struggle, but at least there was a path to keep him trapped trying to get it through to the third reading and she moved first I mean I don't know Helen the others were moving too and then there's a question of the SNP but she certainly moved but first I think that that's just a symptom of the deeper problem that the Liberal Democrats had that they committed themselves unequivocally from day one to trying to stop Brexit and not so just the, the mistake goes back to the morning and, after and, the and, referendum and, and not just stop it but not think that they might have to consider the possibility of trying to you know engineer a very very soft Brexit and I mean by that particularly staying in the customs union because that was the point at which Johnson could have been to use your phrase trapped you know, in the house of commons because it wasn't clear really 
that there was a majority for passing the withdrawal bill that wouldn't have made a strong commitment to the customs union in the political declaration in ways that would have made it difficult for for him to maintain party discipline within the Conservative Party from the ERG. But having a, a watered-down Brexit, not, I mean, I know that's not a very sort of rigorous way of describing it, but it will do off, off this little sleep. Uh, it, <laughs> that was never something that they were willing to contemplate. It, it had to be stop Brexit. And at that point, the only way that they, as they saw it, to stop Brexit was to gamble on having a general election because they could see the votes weren't there in the House of Commons for second referendum so if your aim was absolutely to stop Brexit without any consideration of a, of a backup position then the election was the only option that was available to them but the mistake was the unwillingness to compromise to even think about having a plan B. Yes I think that the Liberal Democrats thought that the situation was much easier for them than in fact it was and I think that's why the charge of hubris is the right one they were thinking back to the European elections where they did very, very well. Lots of people who normally vote Labour voted for the Liberals. They thought they had a load of seats in the south of England pretty much in the bag. They thought they had a popular new leader that would tap into widespread discontent with both the Conservative and the Labour leaders. And they also, you know, the, the way in which the Liberal Democrats have worked so smoothly in the world of people's vote and the campaign for either for Remain or for a second referendum made them think that there was a large constituency that would have its vote chiefly determined by a strong position on Remain. In particular, I think they found that there were many fewer Tory Remainers than they'd hoped that there would be for a long time. I mean, people in the Labour Party used to say that, I'm sure they still say, but they said that Joe Swinson was a Tory, and that was the charge that was made repeatedly, and partly that was because she was a coalition minister and implicated in some of the coalition's disasters. And partly it seemed that she herself would have been much more comfortable with renewing a Conservative-Liberal arrangement after the election. But whether or not Joe Swinson is a Tory or not, she was positioning the party to hoover up the votes of Tory Remainers. That's why she presented such a hard anti-Corbyn front to make it easier for traditional Conservative voters to vote for her. But it turned out that Conservative Remainers are Conservatives before they're Remainers, and there just weren't that many but of I those think votes. That, that second part of that, I think, is right. But the first part, I think, is the exact opposite way around, is that she didn't show sufficient anti-Corbyn credentials for those Tory Remainers. And one of the reasons why she didn't was because she'd spent the previous few months, particularly that period in September, clearly working together with a Corbyn-led Labour Party over the the Ben Bill and other matters, and I would say that Tory Remainers were looking at her and were thinking that she was more likely to provide supply and confidence to a Corbyn premiership than to a Johnson premiership. And if she'd really been serious about winning those Tory Remainers, she needed to commit the Liberal Democrats to a second referendum on Johnson's withdrawal agreement because then they could have still have their preference for Johnson over Corbyn and still vote for a second referendum. This is the point where I want to plug our short film on YouTube called Who Is Joe Swinson. It sounds brutal. We'll have to rename it Who Was Joe Swinson. But actually, I think it still stands up. You can go to YouTube, just look up Talking Politics, and it's there, not least because it speculates that she's going to lose her seat. But it also speculates that she will be the decisive actor in the Brexit saga. And in some ways, I think with hindsight, she was. She was, I think, because 
the article revoke article 50 position was not imposed on her by necessity as a remainer the liberal democrats could have thought about backing instead a second referendum and they didn't choose that it's maybe unfair to sort of blame entirely the party because the way the liberal democrats have performed is partly in relationship to what other parties have done but it's it's certainly the case that i think she was neither one thing nor the other. She wasn't close enough to Corbyn to actually establish a Remain alliance in a formal way where you start to decide who's going to stand where because you focus 100% on, on Remain. But nor was she able to go completely on the other side either and so it would put off people who thought that she was too close to Corbyn. I think there there was a sort of, on the one hand, the hubris around Article 50, but also just the willingness, I suppose, to put the Liberal Democrats ahead as a party of the ahead of their position on, on Brexit. If a Martian came down and looked at this election and just saw the front page of say, the BBC website and you look at the vote shares, so the Tories have gone up a little bit. Labour have clearly had a very bad night. But the winners by far are the Liberal Democrats. So they have gone up from 7.5 to something like 11.5. Added more than 50% to their vote share. So the electoral system hasn't helped them. But the reason it's such a terrible night for them is that it's the hubris. <laughs> but also the electoral system really gave them a, a considerably more seats than they would have been expected to get from less than 8% of the vote last time. Yeah, sure. And, and from 7 to 11 is not something to make a song and dance about, but it is still notable that they're the vote share winners. The other group of people who thought that the Liberal Democrats were going to hoover up Conservative seats in the south of England were the MPs in the Conservative seats in the south of England. I've spoken to some, I'm sure you have too. Like, they were terrified. So the other thing that, if you just run this back, what, six months, nine months? And lots of Conservative MPs thought that their party was dead. I mean, literally, we use this slightly pompous phrase, existential crisis, but they were talking about it ceasing to exist. And here it is, like Thatcher in her pomp. It's quite hard to think of a turnaround. I can't think of a turnaround in two national elections from 9%. 9%. It wasn't even quite 9%. To 45 It's kind of amazing. This is not a question. I'm just, I'm amazed. The Conservatives thought that the Liberal Democrats had them across the south of England. Well, it, I think it was complicated by the fact that the Liberal Democrat vote in the European Parliament in parts of the south of England was also helped by Conservative Leave voters voting Liberal Democrat. I think that's one of the undertold stories about the European Parliament elections because there's a kind of default position for Conservative voters in the south of England who want to protest against the Conservative Party when they're unhappy with it. And they vote, used to vote Liberal or Alliance and now they're voting Liberal Democrat, because these are kind of voters who are perhaps not keen on voting for a party like the Brexit Party. They certainly would never vote Labour as a protest party. So they're just the default action was to vote Liberal Democrat. And the mysterious logic of that is it worked. I mean, it's yeah. a pretty genius strategy <laughs> because it did get them the Conservative Party they wanted. And now it's got them the Conservative government they wanted. If you think about the European Parliament elections, then obviously the two main parties did disastrously. But no one would expect in a general election, even if it had been held the next day, for those party shares to manifest themselves. I think the problem, if you like, existentially for the Conservatives was is that the thing that they have always historically been able to stop, which is a party to their right, and I think it's a bit too oversimplistic to say the Brexit party was straightforwardly to their right because 
an economic dimension you might say it's a little bit more complicated than than that but that's what they were confronted with and that is what they've always been able to see off and that is what actually they've succeeded in doing again this time so how much difference did the brexit party make in this election one of the reasons conservative mps in the south were terrified of losing to the lib dems is they thought the vote would split in their constituency but the brexit party did not stand in any of those seats the brexit party did stand in all these seats in the north and the midlands and on some of the vote shares, that Labour vote dropped 10%, the Tory vote went up 2%, the Brexit Party vote went up 8%. And unless I've got the maths wrong, that means they took more votes from Labour than the Conservatives in some places, which is what Farage promised the Conservatives he would do. Yes, I mean, when the Brexit Party decided it would only stand in opposition-held seats, that meant that it was no longer trying to appeal both to discontented Tories and discontented Labour voters. Its its pitch could be directed almost entirely at Labour voters, discontented Labour voters who, because they were Labour voters, would be very unlikely to cast a vote for the Conservatives, but would be willing temporarily to don a Brexit party mask and vote for one of Nigel Farage's candidates. Again, we had a forerunner of that strategy in the European elections with the election of people like Claire Fox and these these strange figures from the old world of the Revolutionary Communist Party who popped up on the Brexit Party lists. But talking a very Alexit game, a, a, a story about the restoration of, of national sovereignty and uh, leaving the European Union able to open up strategies of economic intervention and um, more populist economics. And uh, we saw a bit of that at the European election, but that, I think, was the strategy now, where they weren't worrying about peeling off votes for the Conservatives. They were giving the Conservatives a free run in their seats. Chris, where does Lexit stand now? I suppose in some ways, I mean, those who've been trying to sort of push the Labour Party in a different direction on Brexit and who've argued that it should have long ago accepted the result of the referendum and moved on are... I suppose, you know, partly vindicated. But Lexit is more than accepting the result of the referendum and moving on. It's accepting the result of the referendum and using it for the project. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways that's a sort of a different story. I mean, insofar as now it seems a Tory majority will mean that the UK will definitely leave um, the European Union, then you would expect that those people who had some idea of what that might look like on the left will have a lot more to say or a lot more to contribute than those who were sort of determined not to even contemplate it as a possibility and had no sort of sense of what was to come post, post-Brexit. post So I think there's there's that. But I think the, the Leave voter had two places to go, really, to the Tories or to the Brexit party. Now, in many places, it was no longer able to go to the Brexit party. And you had this position where would you be willing to vote for, and if you were a former Labour Party voter, would you be willing to vote for a party many of whom had been telling you for three years that you were a xenophobe, a racist or ignorant. I think the Labour Party at the very end of the campaign made this half-hearted effort to win back some of these voters, realising that they were possibly lost. I don't think people are are fools and they just say, well, we're not going to come back, having been told these things for so long. Um, So you vote Conservative. And if you have the option about voting the Brexit Party, then you may vote Brexit Party as well. But there's only two places to to go. Yeah, I mean, I think that... The people in the in the Labour Party who are more vindicated than the sort of the Lexit position are the people who wanted to support Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. Well, they're vindicated in one way and they also look like fools in another way because they didn't. I was going to draw a distinction between the ones who did vote for it and I the say, ones. Well, that's a small. Group. Yeah, and the ones who and the ones who 
whatever we want to call it, bottled voting. And one who did, Caroline Flint, lost her seat, didn't she? She did. And so did the ones who regretted it, like Gareth Snell lost his seat. And so I think in terms of the way in which the Labour Party responded to the European Parliament elections, I mean, I thought this at the time, it was was really in denial about the the Brexit Party's success. Because if you looked at the European Parliament constituencies where they were the biggest party, they weren't the vast majority of them. I think the only ones that wasn't the case was Scotland and London. I could have got that wrong, but I think that that's right. And so there was a response from the Labour Party to that, which was, we must have a second referendum position um, because, look, so many of our voters have been voting Liberal Democrat. But it was pretty clear, I mean, just by looking at the bare facts and the geography of it, that quite a lot of their voters have been voting for the Brexit Party. And uh, at that point, they chose to prioritise the Liberal Democrat defectors over the then Brexit Party defectors. But it seemed to me that there was a fundamental problem with that First of all, it just, I think, ignored the sheer number of Labour League voters that there were. But also, if you in a, the electoral system, which we have, and you've got a set of voters who are defecting to the third party, in principle, versus a set of voters who are able to defect to the principal, your principal rival, then the ones who are willing to defect to your principal rival are of much more consequence than the ones who are willing to defect to the third party because once you get into an election campaign... They can double, basically. It can, yeah. Once you get into an election campaign and once it becomes either this person's going to be prime minister or this person's going to be prime minister, the ones who've defected to the third party have got a much stronger likelihood of going back again. It is an interesting counterfactual to say what would have happened had Labour supported or at least not opposed the passage of Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. But I think the politics would have been extraordinarily difficult for Labour to whip in favour of the withdrawal agreement at a time when opposition is a pretty grim business and you take victories where you can get them. Defeating the withdrawal agreement was one of the only powerful blows the Labour Party struck against the Conservatives. And it brought down a Prime Minister. It brought down a Prime Minister. And had the Labour front bench tried to whip in favour of the withdrawal agreement, it would have created the most extraordinary... It could have allowed abstentions. That's a possibility. That's a possibility, but that on its own wouldn't have been enough to get the withdrawal agreement over the line and simply would have left the Parliamentary Labour Party looking, looking impotent. The electoral map now looks different. Depends whether you do it geographically or by constituency. If you do it geographically, it's all blue, apart from London and a bit of South Wales. And um, If you do it by constituency, you can still see there is a red wall, but it's much smaller. And then there's a blue wall above it. And as one of the people on TV showed, you can walk from sea to sea through Conservative constituencies now in the north of England. Then it's yellow, north of the border. Northern Ireland has changed a little bit. So for the first time, the Nationalists have more seats. In the litany of people who are going to be kicking themselves, the DUP have plenty to kick themselves about, I think. (laughs) Their influence has gone. It's not quite on Liberal Democrat scales, but their influence on Westminster politics has gone from something to zero very quickly. On the basic Tory-Labour split, I mean, there are lots of ways of doing it, but Labour looks like a London plus university towns plus that kind of swathe around Liverpool, Liverpool and Manchester. Manchester. And then little pockets, which are university Londonish pockets, the Brightons and so on. And that's kind of it. I'm not sure. Have I sure. missed a bit? 
I'm not sure the electoral map is so grim for Labour. In general, it's a grim result. But in a lot of these seats in the Midlands and in the North, Labour was still getting 38, 39, 40, 41, 42 percent of the vote. And the Conservatives were winning by a few thousand, not by huge amounts. If you think that what's going on here is that a lot of the people who stopped voting Labour really, really didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, and if you think that there are powerful Brexit-related reasons for Labour doing quite so badly this time, those are two factors that will not apply in the future. Now, it's always possible that Labour will pick a leader who is even less popular than Jeremy Corbyn, and it's also possible that what we're going to see in the Conservative Party is kind of doubling down on the culture war issues that they think have led to success in the Midlands and the North. But in these places where Conservatives have won by three, four, five thousand votes, there's every reason, I think, for Labour to be optimistic that the pendulum will begin to swing back, that the electoral map will look less grim for them next time round. And Obviously, winning from where they are now in one go is going to be extraordinarily difficult. But I think there are good reasons not to think that the realignment in the North is permanent. This is where I plug our other YouTube film, which is called (laughs) Who Will Be Labour's Next Leader. It's also, I think, not completely out of date. We could talk about that. We probably should talk about it in a future podcast. A lot will hang on that. A lot will also hang on what happens between... Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson because so Labour has been wiped out. I mean, the exit poll suggested that the SNP were going to win just about every seat in Scotland and they didn't. The Lib Dems held on. The Conservatives held on to some. Labour didn't. And Labour is now the big loser in Scotland. This is the challenge. So I, I tend to agree. I, we talked about this in the podcast a couple of days ago with um, Alain Menon. The Tories will have to do something unprecedented, which is win five in a row. They're going to win next time, and it's not going to be easy. And they now own Brexit, and they own its consequences, and so on. But if it's an England-only election, it's quite hard to win a majority when Scotland has gone. And Johnson's won a massive one. Even Thatcher, when she was about to lose Scotland for the Conservatives, even in 87, she still was winning 10-plus seats in Scotland. If Scotland's gone and you still win a majority this size, it's a real challenge, isn't it, for Labour to win as an English party? But I think it's a big assumption that Scotland will be gone in five years' time. Okay, so sorry, when I say gone, I don't mean independent. I mean gone for Labour as a source of seats. Do you think Labour are coming back in Scotland? Because if they're not, it's really hard, isn't it? But this has been the status quo now across three elections that Labour was wiped out in 2015. People were surprised that Labour clawed back some of those seats in 2017, but they did it much more because the SNP vote dipped a bit than because Labour, the Labour vote rose. The Labour vote rose by vanishingly small amounts nationally, and half of those extra votes it put on were in the one seat they do hold, Edinburgh South, uh, which is, you know, is now the Labour fortress again. So the strategic issue that it's very difficult to see how Labour win an overall majority without Scotland. That's now consistent over three elections and will be the case in the fourth. But the thing that's different is in that dip, Labour have been have gone back down again, but the parties of the union, the other ones, have held a foothold. The, the other thing that's very difficult for Labour is the Scottish Labour Party clearly has no idea where it can go. That's to say they tried being led from the centre-left of the party. That didn't work. They now have Richard Leonard as their leader and 
the Corbyn people were very optimistic that that would send Scotland red again, and that doesn't work. It's not only that Labour's in a very bad position, it's also very difficult to plot a route out of that position, and much harder, I think, than it is when it comes to England. Labour in Scotland looks like the socialists in France. I mean, it's it's really hard to see where you how you come back. But I think there is a difference, which is that the coming years for the SNP, I think, will not be as easy as that, because SNP are going to be facing a sort of a decisive, an, an existential moment for them, which is that if they can push for a another referendum, and if they don't win it, what becomes of them as a party? What do they go for after that? Um, and I know what Helen's going to say here, plus the Alex Salmon trial. I was going to say something else, actually. <laughs> well, there's that as well. That's the other existential yeah. thing, not for yeah. the whole party, but for possibly its leader. Possibly. Scotland, I think, in some ways seems sort of set in stone in some way, certainly from the perspective of the Labour Party. I don't think it's maybe quite as clear as that. I think the next few years will be difficult also for the SNP in positioning itself. The point about Brexit and Scotland is is that I mean, Brexit increases the desire for independence because of the fact it's imposed upon Scotland by England and Wales. And yet it makes the realisation of independence even more difficult in a practical sense than it, than it was previously because it creates this choice between the unions, so to speak, for Scotland. And between the currency. Yeah, well, the currency one was fudged last time, but it's going to be a question between you know, like which single market, in some sense, do you um, want to be in? So I, I, I think the question then becomes as well, how is the playing out of this Scottish question, the union question, over the next five years, and the fact that it's going to involve a constitutional dimension, a very strong constitutional dimension of who has the authority to decide whether a second referendum in Scotland can take place, will continue to have consequences for English politics in particular, but English and Welsh politics. And so that Labour's got to decide what its position is in relation to the union. Is it going to keep being a party of the union? In one sense, it has to be for the reasons that we've already talked about. But how much unionist vote could it expect to get in a situation in which the nationalists are going to remain a, a strong force? Because it could be that the Conservatives have replaced them as the stronger of the unionist parties. One last thing before we bring some other people in. Chris, it's a question about momentum in this long march back for the Labour Party. Momentum has become, I think, an important force in British or maybe English politics and last night Momentum had some successes. It's a mobilisation organisation, it's a youth organisation, not exclusively but primarily. The Labour Party is increasingly a party of young people and I don't need to say, people who've heard this podcast will know that I have a view which is if you try and win an election with young people you've missed the demographic fact that there are a lot more old people than there are young people. But Momentum has a choice to make too, I think. It was a very Remain strand within the Labour Party. Where do you think it goes? Not who does it want for its next leader or the party's next leader, but apart from anything else, do you think it maintains this energy or does it start to dissipate? I think energy will dissipate in the sense that momentum has been so closely tied to the Corbyn brand that even if the people around Corbyn manage to get their preferred candidate elected to the leadership of the party, it's difficult to see those levels of enthusiasm being maintained for a successor, and defeats do have a demobilising effect. Having said that, Labour is obviously very strong in 
London in all kinds of parts of inner London, in all kinds of parts of London that 20 years ago Labour were not competitive in. And that's a transformation that goes along with the efforts that Momentum have put in when they managed to get hundreds and hundreds of people out onto canvassing sessions in in Putney and so on. So I think there is a question about where Momentum goes, but it's very closely linked to the broader question, which is that Labour is broadly popular among young people, among millennials, among the precariously employed, among renters, and so on. And that gives you that split that there are more of these people in the cities where Labour is already strong, and there are many fewer of these people in the seats that Labour has just lost and that it will need to win back. And that's the strategic difficulty of how can you plot a strategy and how can you have a leader who can appeal both to the Midlands and the North on the one hand and while holding the gains that they've made in big metropolitan areas on the other. That's a strategic dilemma for the Labour leadership as much as it is for John Lansman and the people around him at Momentum. Can you see, in a word, can you see that leader? I can't, the leader who bridges that divide, the potential leader who bridges that divide. It's not Keir Starmer, I don't think, and it's, and I think the leader probably is going to need to be a woman. It doesn't have to be, but I don't see it. My assumption is that the leadership will be fought out between Rebecca Long-Bailey and Angela Rayner. It looks to me as if the people around John McDonnell would very much like Rebecca Long-Bailey to take over as the leader. But Angela Rayner could be a better bet for that particular strategy. I mean, it's, it's a challenge, but... Yes, I think so. The difficulty is that Rayner is unlikely to be unambiguously the candidate of the Corbyn left, which means she's going to face a huge amount of vitriol and, as the, the Corbyn wing of the party, unites around its candidates and anathematises everyone else. And Rayner's had a reasonably good press from the left up to now, and that's almost certainly going to change. Oh, the vitriol. Um, How we look forward to it. Let's have 24 hours without the Corbynite vitriol. The, the point is that the so, there is a social basis to momentum. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And that Labour does have a new electoral coalition and that the part of it that momentum represents is stronger than the part of it of, of those who want Keir Starmer to be the leader of the party. And that isn't just about the membership. I mean, the sort of middle-class, middle-aged are kind of a Remainers who are voting Labour primarily for that reason are not as in a strong position in the Labour electoral coalition as it now exists as the the millennials voters who attracted to momentum in the way in which Chris has described. And so on the one hand, you say Labour's got to get back to the centre, but its own centre isn't where it was. And I didn't say I had to get back to the centre. I said I agree with Chris. It has to straddle a huge strategic divide. What I would hope is it's more than just straddle, which is that the narrow social basis of momentum and really the Labour Party today becomes self-aware of itself as having this narrow social basis and thinks really hard about how to broaden it out. Because if it remains as it is, I think it will continue to pursue the same sort of policies and it simply can't win elections on that basis. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So this is Mike Kenny, an occasional contributor to Talking Politics. I'm struck by how little is being said about Northern Ireland, um, partly because of the results, but um, also just because the DUP looked like they won't matter in the next parliament in the way that they have done in the last one. But also perhaps people overlooking the fact that if, as it looks likely, the 
withdrawal agreement now passes uh, and we do technically leave the EU by the end of January, then that will be on the terms presumably set by the, the bill that Johnson has already tabled, which has this very um, important set of provisions for Northern Ireland, which you know, de facto leave Northern Ireland in, in part in within the European Union in terms of the customs arrangements there. So the potential or you know, the implications of that for Northern Ireland um, are huge uh, and as yet not really sort of figuring in the British political commentary, which I guess I'm quite struck by. What does this say about left-wing parties in Europe? And the reason why I'm asking this question is because, of course, um, left, the centre-left parties across Europe, I'm thinking of Italy, but also France and Germany, have long reflected on Corbyn's success in 2017 and really the success of Corbyn has been seen as the proof that the left has to move further to the left. And then, of course, these results seem to contradict that. And just one example for all, Renzi this morning, his first tweet was to say something along the lines of, oh, you see, this is what happens when you try to uh, move centre-left parties to the far to the left. And I'm not sure this is exactly true or it's an accurate uh, explanation for what happened. It might be. But I guess what is interesting is to, um, to ask what will this result do to centre-left parties in Europe? Some overnight thoughts from some of our regular Talking Politics contributors. There'll be a few more at the end. And we're going to have another word with Helen too at the end of this. Yeah. Are we... Anyone want more coffee? No. Yeah. I went to bed about one and got back up about three, I think. Um, so I, I missed the Prime Minister's victory speech. So apparently he said, let's get breakfast done. Breakfast. And how, how we laughed. So your girl could be very jealous because I got the exit poll, thought, can't be bothered, went to bed and woke up at half five as usual. Whoa. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> now we've got a whole nother panel with us. This is a bumper edition. Peter Sloman, Kenneth Armstrong, Alison Young are here. We're going to talk about some of the constitutional implications of Johnson's, I think I called it in the first part of this podcast, a thumping win. It's thumping, not by Blair standards, but by all recent historical standards. Alison, you sent us an email yesterday where you said, if Johnson wins, <laughs> you did, you, you had your kind of, you, you paid lip service to the hung parliament scenario, as we did on our recent podcast, but you saw which way the wind was blowing. You said the Constitution faces a crisis. It's under threat. It is. I'd, I'd say... Just now threat. you said doomed. doomed. <laughs> <laughs> which one do you want to go for? I think that was early morning, uh, too much caffeine fuel. Too much sleep. <laughs> too much sleep, unlike others. I think I'd go for at risk. And the reason I'd say at risk is because in the run-up to the general election, you could see in the balance of power between Parliament and the government, it was tipping towards Parliament. And you could see greater controls of MPs, backbench MPs, opposition MPs, holding the government to account for their policies. You can see exactly the same in the courts. So what do you get in the Conservative Party manifesto? A suggestion that there is a need to look at broader aspects of the relationship between government, parliament and the courts, a need to look at the royal prerogative, a need to look at access to justice, a need to update the Human Rights Act and administrative law to get the proper balance 
And the way they look at this is to say that they want to stop judicial cases from being abused so that you can basically conduct politics by another means or just to create delays. Now, as a constitutional lawyer, I see that as let's move power back towards the executive, reduce the ability of parliament to hold the government to account for its policies and reduce the ability of the court to hold the government to account for its policies. And that's what worries me. In historical perspective, the period where Parliament was able to exercise this kind of restraint on the executive is a recent phenomenon. And after all, we are in some ways going back to the much more familiar mm. Blair, Thatcher. But even before that, again, there was a anomalous period in the 70s, but on the whole. Mm. And that's what I was thinking when you were speaking there, actually. This is back to the kind of two-party or two-party politics, or at least having one party that gets a thumping majority and allows the system to work as it should. And in fact, it's in the last period where we haven't had that, that the constitution has been more under strain. So almost counterintuitively, you might think that actually this is the period in which the constitution just settles again because we have traditional form of an executive with the ability to run its business through Parliament, which is kind of how it's generally been before. I can see that. But if you look at the way parties have been changing, so I don't think it is necessarily the case that we always have a two-party system. So if you look at the rise of the SNP, I think that is something that you have to take account of. You can't just see it as there are these two parties anymore. And also, I think if you look at the way in which we do politics, we're so used to this ideology of lots of membership of political parties, lots of people then debating within a political party to come up with a manifesto, which you vote on. If you look at party membership, I was looking at uh, research uh, recently, I think it's most party members are from the South, middle-aged, white and male. So there's only a subsection of individuals who are then debating within political parties. So I'm not sure that our assumptions necessarily match reality. And this is why I think there needs to be more of a discussion of how far we want Parliament to be controlling the executive rather than going back to a traditional strong government. So you're absolutely right. It's going back to normal. The question is, are we still in normal? Was it just a Brexit blip with a minority government? Or is something else in politics changing too? Because the other thing that potentially has changed is it's normal following this either anomalous or, as you say, the, the new normal period, in which, among other things, we saw what the executive was capable of doing. So there is, I think, in the background, the thought, I, mean, I feel this quite strongly, that the British constitution working, quote-unquote, as it should, gives the executive extraordinary unconstrained powers. And then we have seen what an executive constrained tries to do, and it's the same guy. <laughs> and there is, I think, that thought that the traditional British constitution does not have many safeguards for executive abuse. And OK, so he might say, the guy, that he was maybe not abusing it, but stretching it right to the limits because he was stuck. And now that he's been unstuck, he'll be free to become a conventional one nation, respect the Queen conservative but <laughs> we know what we know i mean I, I i absolutely agree with that i mean i think what we have seen this autumn is a a relatively weak prime minister running up against the limits which the constitution places on him and you know breaking norms around prorogation and so on and the message of the election is that much of the electorate seems to be profoundly unconcerned by that and so insofar as much of the conservative vote at least seems to subscribe to that old-fashioned theory of elective dictatorship and letting a government get on with things for four and a half or five years, then I guess what the Conservatives are likely to do is to try to bring the formal constitution into line with that kind of folk understanding of how British politics works. And so 
There's a thought they're going to repeal the fixed term parliament. Oh, Act. There's no rush, right? <laughs> I don't think he wants to go to the country again immediately, but they will in the next 18 months, two years. What other legislation do you think? So if you look at that manifesto set of commitments, it's all quite, for me as a non-lawyer, vague. I'm not sure, but they will legislate on some of this. They probably will. So they, they're going to set up a Constitution, Democracy and Rights Commission, which in contrast to the political parties, they were going for more citizen assemblies to change the Constitution. This is going for a committee of someone, a commission yeah, who? composed Who's going of, to be on that? I have no Are you idea. going to be on it? Uh, no one's asked me so far. Uh, I'll keep I'll, you posted. I'll nominate I, you. I highly doubt it. But uh, I think anyone who's read my Twitter feed isn't going to be, isn't going to expect me to be on that anytime soon. <laughs> But uh, the question is, in what direction is that going? And they'll repeal the FTPA. My guess is they'll just repeal it. They won't replace it with anything. Well, so there's no need. Get, this is no going need. back. They'll to... go back to the system beforehand. There'll be lots of constitutional lawyers trying to argue about whether the prerogative comes back or whether it was killed and whether you need it. But in essence, in reality, it'll go back to how it was before, I think, back to the prime minister deciding when they want to hold a general election. And that's the end of it. The rest of the moves, they'd already tried to place restrictions on judicial review in 2015, and they don't didn't necessarily go as far as they wanted to. So my guess is they will put even more restrictions so that it's harder for, for public interest groups to intervene in judicial review cases. They will probably modify the, the costs of judicial review again so that you don't get protective cost orders, so you have to face the full possible cost of bringing a judicial review action. My guess is that will go up, and they will try and in some way make it harder to get to the courts, either through these legislative mechanisms. My other concern is will they use legislation or will they go away and change the standing orders? Because there's been lots of use of standing order, bringing in motions to change standing order 14, the creative use of standing order 24 and the acceptance that this can now provoke the ability to then go away and amend standing order 14. Will they all be changed? Will they go back? Will they be rewritten and approved? Because then there's no oversight of the courts because that's all internal rules of Parliament. And if you've got a large majority, why not change the standing orders and move it in a way that makes it harder for some of the things we've seen before? The other point of resistance that's gone is Burko. We've got a new speaker. Now, a lot has changed. The last few months, it depended not just on circumstances, but people too. This is a new Parliament in lots of respects. Where is the resistance going to come from, apart from Nicola Sturgeon? I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Lords. I mean, I, it's not, I can't see that being a particularly strong site of resistance in terms of being able to do anything, but I mean, in terms of, of politics, of, of saying things and, and get other messages out there, then we might see that sort of role for the House of Lords. But when you've got a, a government with a large majority in the Commons, it can pretty well get stuff through. On Brexit in particular, one thing that will be interesting to see will be what role Parliament will play in the next phase, because you know the direction of travel in our constitution has been to actually give Parliament more of a role when it came to international negotiations in terms of approving deals that have been done afterwards on, on, on Europe. David Cameron, of course, introduced the European Union Act that had these referendum locks on treaty change and all the rest of it. Now, I don't think we're now going to see a referendum on whatever trades deal comes at the end of it, but it will be a very interesting one for, for Johnson to think about, is what role does he actually want this new Commons 
Parliament to play when it comes to approving any future trade deal, and not even this, not even just this trade deal with the EU, but also any any ones with with the US or, or anybody else. In a sense, having secured a parliamentary majority for his broad strategy in terms of negotiations, there may be advantages in getting parliamentary buy-in yeah. to the negotiations themselves and trying to depoliticise that process exactly. and, and dip the Labour Party's fingers in that, that blood, as it were. And he also has the advantage, I mean, he has many advantages now, they won't last forever and they may not last for long, but he's got a much more united party than any of the parties facing him, but particularly the Labour Party. Now, he's done his purge and the Labour Party is still and will be on these fundamental Brexit future relationship questions, it's still divided. No, no one exactly. wants to no, dispute but, that. I, mean, just, I don't think you can dispute it. I mean, what, what is interesting discussing Parliament's role is that if you go back to the it disappeared because it lost its programme motion withdrawal agreement bill, they were some aspects of parliamentary oversight, but not as much as they had been in the withdrawal agreement bill. So Parliament has to approve a resolution to agree an extension to the negotiation period and Parliament, by Parliament I mean just the House of Commons, Obviously, House of Commons does this. The House of Lords has its neutral vote to take note of what's going on in the House of Commons. So predominantly the House of Commons playing a role gets to approve an extension and it also has to approve the agreement that comes through. But the way that works is if the government asks for an extension and Parliament says no, there's no extension. So it's almost like pushing it towards whatever the government wants will go through. There's less of an ability, I think, for Parliament to push back if it's not happy than there was under the other legislation. I don't know what the new withdrawal agreement is go- bill is going to be. It's going to have to be enacted through Parliament very quickly if we're going to be leaving on the 31st of January. So my guess is it will look remarkably similar to the one whose programme motion was lost, if not exactly the same, because that's just the easiest course of action. What's going to happen with the Supreme Court? It's another thing where the Supreme Court existed for a long time without many people being aware of it and certainly aware of its political implications. Then suddenly it becomes absolutely central to our politics and there's a dramatic one particular day that people will remember, the kind of Lady Hale brooch day. And now that we have a parliament in which the executive has a majority that it I mean, I don't know when Johnson's going to lose his first vote. You know, he lost every vote in his first phase as Prime Minister. He's probably not going to lose any at all. So the one issue where the politics hits the Supreme Court in a way that might be comparable to what happened before is Scottish independence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kenneth, how do you see that one going? How quickly does it reach, do you think, the Supreme Court, potentially at least? It reaches the Supreme Court if... The First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, makes a request for a Section 30 order for there to be a a referendum on independence in Scotland and the Johnson government simply says, well, we're we're not going to give consent, we're not going to agree that. And before her request, presumably, she has a vote in Holyrood. Or does she not need to? She wouldn't need to. Would she not want to use the weight of the Scottish Parliament in constitutional terms? But I think they've already had that. Yeah, they have. um, They need another one. And they've had the general election and they would say, well, we... And the SNP always win in Scotland for now. So it hits if that request is refused 
and then the Scottish Parliament is engaged to enact legislation. Oh, so then the yeah. Scottish Parliament Because comes it, yeah. but there has to be something to actually get it to the Supreme Court yeah. in the first place. And what's that thing going to be? And that thing, to me, seems the most likely thing is yeah. that the Scottish Parliament then starts to engage the legislative process to put in place. Now, the Scottish Parliament has already been legislating on putting in place a broad legal framework for future referendums in Scotland. This was Nicola Sturgeon's way of showing that the, the, the motion was still was still there towards independence, but framed in terms of a, a generic set of rules on referendums. But this would be a much more specific, this will be a referendum on independence. And at that point, that's where we would see the engagement with the courts in terms of its constitutionality under the, under the Scotland Act. The only other possible way would be to see if you could seek judicial review of the Prime Minister's refusal to grant a Section 30 order to empower them to hold a general election. That was a beautifully structured sentence. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you have to ask under Section 30. Well, we think you have to. That that even that isn't clear. So last time, that's what they did. It's still up for grabs whether Scotland has the ability to hold a referendum, given this is politically advisory. And so therefore, in a sense, he's not touching on constitutional issues, which is what comes out of the last big case on the powers of the Scottish Parliament, the reference on the Scottish Continuity Bill. So it could be possible they have the power to do this. So the sensible thing to do is to go away and say, can we have power to go away and have a referendum? Prime Minister says no. So then do you bring a judicial review case to say, well, I'm going to judicial review your challenge to refuse because I don't think you've got good enough grounds. Now, that's not necessarily going to be easy to win, but I can see there being momentum to try and push a court case on that issue. If that fails, then you're likely to go away and enact the legislation anyway and then go through the route that that Kenneth was mentioning so that there could be two possible challenges. One of the poignant moments watching TV last night was Andrew Neil interviewing Nigel Farage and trying to say to him, well, you've had a bad night, haven't you? Brexit party hasn't done very well. And Farage said, well... I've delivered Brexit, I've destroyed the Liberal Democrats, I've handed the Conservatives 50 seats from Labour and I'm off to work for Donald Trump. So I'm fine. <laughs> but um, And then Neil said, well, what are you going to do in British politics? He said, well, I want to create a reform party now because I still think we need to reform the system. What do you want to reform? Well, first past the post is a terrible system. And that was the poignant bit because... Those reforms are further away than ever. You know, we've got a system that everyone was saying is creaking, really creaking. And it wasn't some terrible conjunction of accidents. It was a couple of things happened. And suddenly we see how under strain it is. And we will just behave as though none of that had happened. I mean, is there... (laughs) I've been all my adult life hoping to... Someone would reform the first past the post system. It's... The people who win under the system aren't going to reform it. And when no one has won under the system, the system freezes anyway. The only thing you can say is that it's very difficult now to see how the Labour Party wins a parliamentary majority. So Labour could Labour become a... A party of electoral reform yeah. next time the pendulum swings. That temptation to move to a voting system which embeds at least the possibility of a progressive alliance working together in government is going to be much more attractive. The oddity is that... That would have to be with Scotland not having left and in conjunction with the SNP. The SNP are fantastic beneficiaries of first-past-the-post. He needs 
Yeah, it needs Nigel Farage back well, to the, drive it. Yeah, I mean, the Conservative Party manifesto clearly states they will keep first past the post. They're going to initiate the boundary changes that have meant to be being rolled in for a long time now. From the I'd completely to forgotten about the boundary changes. Yeah, so I wonder how those will go. And reform of the House of Lords is also the other thing that mm. Farage has talked about as well as his great reform package. Well, so. well he wants to be in it. Or more than that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let's go back to... Um, House of Lords reform is also now a pipe dream, presumably. It could be interesting if when some of this... As Alison talked about the withdrawal agreement bill going through the Parliament now. I mean, the one place where that could start to get sticky is when it gets into you know, the Lords beginning to scrutinise and look at it and being difficult about that, that will cause some degree of annoyance, presumably, particularly with, you know, if you've got a a large majority in the Commons, you think, well, why do we still have this House of Lords that is capable of being, it can't stop stuff, but it's still going to make life more difficult. And maybe that's the moment to then think about, is there actually some reform agenda that even makes sense for a Johnson government? Yeah. That feels like the Thatcher years. I mean, that was yeah. part of the flavour of the yeah. Thatcher years, wasn't it? Sort of, we've got this massive majority. Why is anyone standing in our way? But they didn't yeah. do anything about it. There's a mention that the Constitution, Democracy and Rights Commission that will be established will look at the role of the House of Lords. So I presume this means how do we reduce its powers? What status do you think that passage in the Conservative Manifesto would have in terms of the Salisbury Convention? Because it, it's it's couched in very general yeah, terms in terms of looking at yeah. how the Constitution operates, looking at the role of the House of Lords. I mean, RP is going to see that as sort of carte blanche to do anything that the government wants to do? The difficulty with Salisbury Addison is, is how are they going to interpret it and how do they apply it in certain circumstances? I don't think they'd see that as sufficiently clear manifesto goal. So things like we are going to repeal the first past the post act, you couldn't then turn around a wrecking amendment on that, because obviously, it's very clear in the manifesto, but we're going to set up a commission that's going to look at the role of the House of Lords. I don't, I don't think they would feel bound to say, oh, well, whatever you say goes, I think you're right, I think they would feel much more willing to be able to push back on those particular proposals, particularly as they're going to go through a commission. So it isn't necessarily the government's proposals, it's the proposals from the commission set up by the government that they might be looking at. Peter, can I ask you a specific question, which isn't a constitutional question, but it relates to some of these things as a historian of the Liberal, what used to be called the Liberal Party. We've just been talking about this with Helen and Chris and Chris, um, seen from outer space, the Liberals had a great night. (laughs) They went from 7.5 to 11.5% of the national vote share. No other party put on votes like that, but it was an absolute catastrophe for a party that's had some catastrophes in its history, where does this one rank? Um, I think it's pretty bad, but I think it falls more in the category of failed attempts of, at revival, very expensive failed attempt at revival, rather than you know a shock on the, on, of the nature of 2015. I mean, 2015 was the cataclysm in which the Lib Dems were not only reduced to eight seats, but only came first or second in about 70 seats. And, and the, the vote tw- share figure I just quoted does mean they are second in quite a few seats. Yeah, absolutely. So the problem they had in this election was that they were trying to appeal to a Remain voting electorate, many of whom were in seats where the Lib Dems were nowhere at the last election, particularly in the London area. Mm. That made the election campaign extremely difficult one to fight. I think we might think that a, a more low-key Lib Dem campaign, in which Joe Swinson had spent more time in Eastern Bartonshire, and the party had stuck with a second referendum 
pledge rather than going to revoke Article 50 might have got the party 15 or 20 seats, maybe a couple more percent in the polls. I was thinking of you and what you said about Jeremy Thorpe in Barnstable <laughs> defending a seat that he might lose and therefore installing a fibre optic cable and it might have been better than the Swinson battle bus. But the basic problem for the Lib Dems is the structural problem that they are now back to being a relatively small third party in, in a political system that, that operates on a two-party basis. And then when you have the SNP is really the, the, the proper third party of politics then in the Commons yeah. with 55, what, 55 uh, MPs. I mean, it's really interesting if you look at the eight seats that the Lib Dems held on to in 2015, they've now lost six of them. So whereas, in, in a sense, as the party receded from its high tide at the end of the coalition, it was mainly holding on in places where individual MPs were popular and, and well dug in, or there was a compelling kind of tactical voting case they can make to squeeze another party. They are now in a much more um, contiguous, ideologically and polit- politically contiguous position, in the sense that most of the seats where they are now doing well are remain voting seats in the southeast, Oxford West, Twickenham, Richmond Park, and so on. They did pretty well in South Cambridge, even though they didn't win. They did pretty well in Guildford, pretty well in, in Wimbledon. Those are seats which they might win next time. Um, so it, there is a case for saying that there is a springboard for Lib Dem recovery. Um, but what they have done is effectively written off much of the Celtic fringe, where they were previously the main rivals to the Conservatives. And you know much of Cornwall, Devon, Somerset voted to leave. Many of those voters would now not touch the Lib Dems in, in any circumstances. As a last question, when you look at this now... It was an odd election because so we did an episode about is this the TikTok election? <laughs> is this the WhatsApp election? It was Boris Johnson kissing babies election. It was him, you know, he, the number of photos of him with a fish or, or you know, in, in a butcher's or with his tie tucked into his shirt and then in the bulldozer. You know, like it was an old-fashioned election that's produced an old-fashioned result. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot going on too, which is was new, but... Yeah, it's not immediately visible the morning after the night before what significance that had. We talked about the Rob Delaney video that was seen exactly. 12 million times. And, and here we are with the Conservative Party having, a, I think, at the latest figure, 78 or 80 seat majority, with Scotland having gone in parliamentary terms. So that's a big majority in England and done very well in Wales. Well, um, the relentlessness of the messaging, that was that is different. It's just, I mean, if you looked at Boris Johnson's Twitter feed, I mean, Every, I don't know how many minutes you'd have the same message, different picture, something else, same message, and it just went on and on and on. I mean, it was like somebody drunk at a Christmas party that just kept saying "I love you" to somebody. It just it was just like rambles, but but it just but kept, it was more effective than that. But it was more effective. I mean, it just it, so I think you're right. It, it felt old-fashioned in that way, but where new technology clicked in was just how to continually repeat that message endlessly. Yeah, and apparently, I think on Facebook anyway, a message went out to people in 40 different constituencies saying yesterday, you are in one of the nine constituencies that could save Brexit. That seems to me to be a really good (laughs) effect. I mean, people were trying to say it's illegal. I don't think it is illegal. I think you just... Uh, is it illegal? No. I no. Mean, it's, no. <laughs> uh, it's just good campaigning. So my question was going to be, though, it both looks very familiar. It looks kind of mid-80s kind of politics. And yet, as we've been talking about, so much of this is not familiar. The, the Scottish question, the role of the courts, the possibility that we have a government that could be actually quite, not radical, but proactive on some constitutional questions, 
and Brexit to come, and they will own Brexit and they will bear the consequences of Brexit. On balance, is this familiar or are we still in pretty new territory, do you think? I mean, in terms of election campaigning, it was a textbook Tory campaign. They identified what went wrong last time. They replaced a leader. They attacked Jeremy Corbyn and the cost of the Labour programme in a classic sort of tax bombshell way, um, saying that, you know, £1.2 trillion of spending would, would bankrupt the country. And they identified weaknesses in terms of the impact of austerity um, and dealt with them. It promising a, more police, promising more nurses. This is really simple stuff. It was a classic Linton Crosby campaign as well. Linton Crosby, Johnson's guru. People email me overnight saying from Australia saying, yeah, you know, <laughs> we've, we've just had one of these two. In every election, there's a moment, a behind the scenes moment. So with Brexit, it was when Cummings stood up and punched through the ceiling last night, apparently in Conservative headquarters, they sang the Ooh, Jeremy Corbyn song, but replaced the words Jeremy Corbyn with Isaac Levido, the Crosby proxy who was put in to run the campaign. But there are still some gains that I think aren't just due to the note of the campaign. So my example is Bolsover, where Dennis Skinner is no longer going to be the beast of Bolsover. Well, he, he may well be, but no longer is their MP. And that for me was a real shock. So I, I, I come from around that area. It's an area where you'd never, ever, ever expect them to vote Conservative, particularly when they're so used to a real character MP they all know. He's somebody who's always in the community. Everyone knows him, knows him well, know him as a good constituency MP. Why did he lose his seat? Brexit. That's the only real explanation. If you go there and say, we've had enough of this, get Brexit done, that's a very clear message to people in that area who voted leave, who feel let down. And so I'm not so sure how far some of these changes are due to Brexit and some of them are due to promising police and promising nurses and promising other changes. And so in some senses, I don't think it's necessarily going back to business as usual. I think that's still hanging over us. And you think it was Brexit and not Corbyn in Bolsover? I would say, yes, Brexit. And on Scotland, well, we've been here before. I mean, we've had a large number of SNP MPs re- returned. And all we, you find is that that doesn't really make much of a difference when you've got a governing party with a large majority. They can still get to do what, what they want. So, but not, that- but not on this scale. So there have been large numbers, but facing a coalition. And then significant numbers in the 80s and some of the 90s facing governments with large majorities. But isn't this the first time you've had a, a huge SNP block and a single party majority government? But in many, in many ways, it just exemplifies the point, which is it still doesn't matter at that point. You've still got, you've got a large number, but the big thing that matters is that the, the party that, that forms government has majority and, get, and can do what it, what it wants. So to finish, I, I thought the last word on this should go to Helen. She and I have been talking about these things for quite a while now. We started this before we were even talking politics, when we were a podcast called Election. But as Talking Politics, our slogan has been Corbyn, exclamation mark. I can never remember the order. I think it's Trump, exclamation mark, Brexit, exclamation mark. And it felt for a long time that that was going to be the slogan until the day we died. Well, the Corbyn bit is going to be shuffled off that in due course. The Brexit bit has moved on. We'll deal with Trump soon enough. Uh, Helen, I kind of felt last night while watching it that you had been an indispensable guide to this. I don't think I would have understood nearly as well where we might be heading without you. And last night was in some ways, I think I can say this, a vindication of some of the things you've been saying over the past few years, a vindication of some of the conversations that we've had on this podcast. What's your, what's your final reflection on it 
I'm not going to ask you, do you feel vindicated? But do you think the shape of British politics makes a bit more sense than it did 24 hours ago? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the thing that I got wrong was uh, the last election, because I thought that what happened last night would happen in 2017. So for me, the question is, it's like, well, why was I wrong then? What's the difference? And I think that it's partly because there was actually no prospect of Corbyn becoming Prime Minister in 2017, so there were enough people who could vote Labour without thinking that there was anything like a Corbyn Premiership which might ensue from it, and that was a freeing thing. And this time round, that, if you like, innocence was taken away from those voters. They had to make a a harder um, choice. But I think as well that the paradox of what happened last time where Brexit was concerned was that lots of people in those seats or leave voters I mean in those seats who have created the Conservative majority last night thought I think that Brexit was done before the last election and that them in part the point of Brexit was that it brought the democratic politics back again and sometimes I think it that they thought they got the Labour Party back again and sometimes you get democratic politics again you get the Labour Party because that's the way they conceived what democratic politics was it was coming back home to them and so they expressed that by carrying on voting Labour and then what happened afterwards was that they were basically told not only that they were still wrong about the referendum which they'd already been told but that actually the votes of the Remainers who'd voted for the Labour Party in 2017 despite the fact it hadn't stood as a Remain Party in 2017 and explicitly accepted the result that their votes, I mean by that the Leave votes, were less important than all those Remainers who'd tried to change Labour's Brexit position by voting for the party, which they succeeded in, you know, that they succeeded in doing. And so I think that the the story is, it isn't still significant part about Corbyn, I really don't think that can be underestimated, but that it was, okay well, we can't have Labour and Brexit, even though that's what we would kind of like. So we'll take Brexit. And we'll take Brexit because it didn't even become about still being necessarily about Brexit, the substance in itself. It came about the fact that they voted for it. And then lots of people who think that they're better than them told them that they couldn't have it. We're not going to be talking about Corbyn for much longer, though we'll be talking about his legacy and also the future shape of the Labour Party a lot, I'm sure. We haven't, in the conversations we've been having this morning, discussed the fact that I think you and I both thought before 2017 that, let's call it his record on security questions, would be more of an issue, and it wasn't. And this time it clearly was. And I remember you saying at the time, and and it remains true, that if you look at Corbyn's personal approval ratings, which were low, and then they came up for the 2017 election, they remained okay afterwards. And then there was a drop from which they have never recovered. And that was the Salisbury poisonings, and the position that he adopted in the Commons. And he hasn't come back from that. So the focus has been on anti-Semitism, which is also a, a difference between 2017 and 2019. But there is anecdotal, and maybe there's more than anecdotal evidence that in the seats that Labour lost last night, security questions did play a part and I think it it does remain significant that something happened in the aftermath and it's partly Theresa May's response too which drew a stark contrast with Corbyn and that this is a difference between 2019 and 2017. I think the thing that we thought, I mean the IRA issue came up too and not least because there was a Prime Minister who was willing to play that 
card, which May wasn't and Johnson did. That is a difference between this time and last time. And we were both, in a way, wrong last time, but something shifted. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's been an underlying issue around Corbyn from the start in this respect, in that to lots of people in this country, including plenty of people in those seats that have cost Labour last night, is is that Corbyn doesn't look like a patriot. And I'm not actually making judgment right now whether that's a right or wrong thing to say about him, but that's what it looks like. And when it becomes an issue of something that happens in a in a British city, and some people suffer as a consequence, and he looks like his instinct is still to take the other side, so to speak. That, I think, you know, it's quite hard to become Prime Minister of a country once you've, once you've done that. And I think that that is what does distinguish him from, say, very much so from Bernie Sanders. We can already see, I think, that you know, some people in the Democratic Party are wanting to use what's happened here as saying the Democrats can't move to the left, so far to the left as some of the candidates want to. And I, I think there's a certain truth in that. On the other hand, Bernie Sanders isn't Jeremy Corbyn because Bernie Sanders hasn't got anything like the kind of history on security issues that Corbyn has. So we've been talking about British politics for a long time and we're going to come back to talk about it. Talking politics is going to continue just because our tagline might have to change. doesn't mean that we have to stop. But we're going to be concentrating on America for the next few weeks. We've got a really exciting series coming out. We're going to put out a little episode to tell you all about it. It's going to be exploring American history with the historians Gary Gerstel and Sarah Churchwell to try and make sense of what's happening in American politics now. And before that, we're recording a conversation with Michael Lewis, author of some of the most interesting books about everything, really, but particularly to talk to him about the Trump administration and what it's doing to American government. That will be our next episode. After that, it'll be our history series. So we're not going to talk about what happens in Britain for a while. We're assuming a lot will happen, but nothing too surprising is going to happen and in the new year we're going to come back and we're going to start again thinking about the future of politics my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics Not long after the exit poll came out, I am sitting on my sofa where I've watched these things for all of the last few elections. This one is so different because there's none of the suspense now, I don't think. Um, But there is a completely different kind of shock, partly at the scale of it. And also just that thing of the penny dropping, I'm looking at the figures. So Joe Swinson, I guess, must have lost her seat and a lot of people who must have felt they were safe on the Labour side are going to have lost their seats. Has Sedgefield gone? So it's not like uh, that moment of, wow, Trump might actually win. It's, um, wow, who's going who's gonna to be here tomorrow? Clearly Brexit vote adds up to something like 45%, which I think is quite a strong mandate. Um, Yet it's not the 52% that came out of the referendum. Now, this 45% 
being a clear Brexit vote in an election that is mostly about Brexit, but not only about Brexit, um, is, of course, a quite, quite a mandate indeed. But it still raises the question of um, the discrepancy between uh, a, ref a vote on a referendum, which is a purely majoritarian vote on one issue, and a general election, a special general election run according to a first-past-the-post system, whose results are read as being equivalent to the results of a referendum. So I guess this is just a broader, more general reflection on how do we claim to have a mandate. When the exit poll came out at 10pm tonight, my initial thought was that tactical voting and things like the Remain Alliance really had, had no effect. And I think that's still true. I think what is significant, though, is that in areas where the Brexit Party has stood aside, that probably has really helped the Conservatives. So if you take the example of Sunderland tonight, where the Brexit Party didn't stand aside, if they had done so, it's pretty clear that I think the Conservatives would have actually really taken that seat. Take that together with the result in the Blythe Valley, where um, a large major, a large Labour majority has been overturned. It really does look as if the Conservatives have got a very large majority. I had thought I was going to stay up tonight, but um, I'm going to go to bed for a few hours. It's so different from those other nights. Uh, the exit poll looks like it's roughly right. Um, it's right enough that if I wake up and Johnson hasn't got a chunky majority, then I will be the most amazed I've been. Um, I've just done an interview with The New Yorker in which I was trying to explain what was going on on the basis of, I think, six results. Um, I don't know what's caused this, but... Some of it is pretty clear, and uh, tomorrow morning I look forward to talking to Helen and others about what actually did drive this, and where are we going. Hello, my name is Catherine Barnard. It's half past five in the morning. I've been up much of the night. I've been watching the results coming in. And it really is quite striking to see just the scale of the Conservative victory and the scale of the Labour defeat. What I would say is that my hopes are that with such a large majority we will have an orderly Brexit on the 31st of January, that the WAD, the Withdrawal Implementation Bill, will go through Parliament relatively smoothly. The real question is what happens next? Some people are saying with such a large majority it will be a way of <coughs> sidelining the ERG. But the fear is that with such a large majority, Boris Johnson thinks that he can do whatever he likes. I'm about to board a flight to Italy. It feels very normal here at Stansted. Um, and as the rain pours down outside, I think what we can say is we're in for a pretty turbulent time over the next few weeks and months. 